Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Crime Story Podcast with Carrie Antholis, where stories of crime and justice are told. On today's podcast, Sean Smith reads his story, Robert Durst Stares Into the Camera, which you can find in written form at crimestory.com. It's mid-morning in Department 81, Airport Courthouse, and Deputy District Attorney John Lewin has me locked in a bear hug. Then again, maybe it's more of an awkward embrace a clumsy blend of affection and aggression. As I observe Lewin's courtroom modus operandi more and more, it's clear that this is the emotional terrain that he prowls restlessly. Lewin is a live wire. Later this same day, I'll watch as he crosses the gallery, leans over a row of seats, and confronts Durst crony and potential witness Douglas Oliver. As always, alternating sweet and sour, good cop, bad cop, with scarcely a hiccup between registers. Escaping with just a bear hug, I conclude, is a good thing. Mid-clinch, Lewin tells me that he's familiar with Crime Story's coverage of the Durst proceedings and thinks some of it is, quote, pretty funny, end quote. Not the reaction I imagined, but at least he's reading us. In retrospect, I now interpret his hug to be both appreciative and vaguely intimidating. Again, That's a sleight of hand the emotionally ambidextrous Lewin can conjure up on the fly. Letting John be John, Deputy DA Habib Balian, who, contrary to first impressions, is neither older nor bespectacled, looks on indulgently until Lewin releases me. Our brief but charged intimacy concluded, we exchange parting pleasantries, and the people edge away for a pre-hearing huddle. It's a head-scratcher to be whiplash from observer to participant, and then back again, to be physically pulled into the story. But this is the conceptually ambiguous territory occupied by the now almost monthly hearings leading up to the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. In previous articles, Crime Story has examined the differing styles of the opposing legal teams, Durst's increasing frailty, and the millions of dollars and hundreds of man-hours expended to bring Durst to justice. Today, we zero in on the fluid relationship between criminal justice and the media, which is Crime Story's sandbox, after all. Today's hearing concerns two defense motions, a motion to compel discovery from a third party and a motion to permit the testimony of outside handwriting experts. Present for the defense are attorneys Chip Lewis, who will argue the first motion, David Z. Chesnoff, Donald Ray, and Catherine Cat Bain, of counsel to DeGarren and Dixon. Missing for the moment, however, is their client. Has Durst been delayed because of the fires raging in the suburbs to the north? Unlikely. He's coming in from Twin Towers, which are downtown, miles away from the fires. Someone whispers that the sheriff's department misplaced Durst's pants and a shirt. So, act of God or wardrobe malfunction? Chip Lewis occupies himself at the lectern, studying his papers. 
Lewin, as mentioned, uses the delay to approach Doug Oliver and an associate. When he asks them to identify themselves, both men smirk. It's intense and toxic, charged with the electricity feel right before a bar fight breaks out. Frustrated, Lewin focuses on the associate. I know who he is, nodding towards the vest and ascot-clad Oliver, but who are you? The blood rushes to the associate's face. After a brief stare down, he hits on a passive-aggressive response. I'm nobody. Tamping down his irritation, Lewin vows to bring Oliver and company to Judge Mark Wyndham's attention and returns to his side of the courtroom. He will revisit this matter later in the day, requesting that Judge Wyndham order the New York-based Oliver to be, quote, on call once the trial begins. Wyndham accedes. Lewin may not be patient, but he is persistent. It's not until very late in the morning, close to the lunch break, when Durst finally makes his now familiar, shaky entrance, looking for all the world like a man unused to the pull of gravity. As I was getting packed up to come out here, one of my boys was helping me, and he asked me what this hearing was about, and I told him. And he saw my binder here and asked, can I read some of it? Absolutely. Chip Lewis, Durst's melancholy warrior, is relating an earlier conversation with his adolescent son. Lewis addresses the court today in full Atticus Finch mode, mixing homespun colloquialisms with appeals to, quote, fundamental fairness, end quote. Since he's seeking access to the recorded and unrecorded interviews obtained by Hit the Ground Running, the team that made the documentary series The Jinx, Lewis's rhetorical stance is intended to challenge the common sense of the court, if not its legal responsibilities. The Socratic dialogue with his son is part and parcel of this strategy. So he started reading the papers of Hit the Ground Running, and he asked me a few questions. What does materiality mean? I did my best to explain it to a 12-year-old. Well, what about relevance? Again, I tried to. He went back to the brief and read a little bit more, and he posed a question that I think encapsulates what we were asking about better than anybody. He said, Dad, how can you tell if the information is relevant if they won't tell you what they have? Simple enough for a 12-year-old to get it. Simple enough. It's essential that Lewis begins his argument this way because all too soon it will whipsaw out into the meta. Lewis argues that the primary justification for Durst's indictment for the murder of Susan Berman rests not with Durst, but with Hit the Ground Running and their desire to promote their film project. They're not a true third party in the sense of many of the cases your honor has studied, Lewis urges. This is a far different kettle of fish. They are the reason we're here. Their work is the only reason we're here. There's something off about this, something tail wagging the dog. I'm still looking up the definition of teleological when the court is adjourned for lunch. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. After the lunch break, hit the ground running attorney Linda Steinman rises to dismiss Lewis's sprawling discovery request. 
Steinman is purposeful, or business. She says, In defense counsel's presentation, he made no mention of the cases and the legal standard. All of these cases made very clear that there is a very high standard to be met when seeking materials from a journalist. The defendant has the burden to show a reasonable possibility that the specific information sought will materially assist the defense, end quote. Arguing that the defense had not met this burden, she utilized still another narrative trope in a day filled with them. Quote, these unknown, unrecorded interviews are just a red herring, end quote. Steinman continues to hack away at the theoretical tangle raised by the defense, asserting the limited role hit-the-ground-running will play in the forthcoming murder trial. She says, It was also interesting and important that the defense had conceded that the jinx is not going to be introduced into evidence in this case. The jinx is a TV show. This is a court of law, and what will be admissible here is the unedited, complete bathroom confession and the other unedited tapes of Mr. Durst talking. His own words will be what's evidence. The jinx is irrelevant. I obviously strongly dispute the defense's attempt to malign my clients. Both the jinx and capturing the freedmen's were fine works. They received many awards. But I am not going to waste time doing that because it's irrelevant. Those films will not be shown to the jury. They will not be eating popcorn and binge-watching them. They will be focused on the evidence. End quote. In just a few sentences... Steinman dispatched the defense's philosophical conceit like someone chopping down a tree. Quote, It was not the television show that led to Mr. Durst's arrest. It was the evidence that hit the ground running provided to the district attorney's office that led to the arrest. End quote. Ruling, Judge Wyndham picks up on Steinman's dissection of the defense's motion. I recognize there is a theme to the defense that there is a media frenzy villainizing Mr. Durst and driving a rush to judgment. But again, a theme is not a defense. Now, the filmmaker's process, as you've described it, with editing and the creation of dramatic effect, may affect the so-called court of public opinion, but it's not material for the evidence actually presented in the case. End quote. Wyndham is mid-sentence when Lewis rises. He has to make a flight home in order to coach a football game. Wyndham is understanding. Good luck with that. What's the team called? When Lewis replies, the Bears, the UC Berkeley-educated Wyndham admits that he's more than comfortable with saying, go Bears, at which point Chesnoff chimes in with yet another media referential quip. When Chip is coach, Your Honor, they're the bad news Bears. Judge Wyndham will later deny the defense's first motion, and then the second. The Court of Public Opinion versus a court of law, themes versus defense, declaring I'm nobody when you're present, in the flesh, occupying a seat. Like other celebrity criminal trials before it, the murder trial of Robert Durst tests the frail boundaries between fact and fiction. Yet again, it's all narrative after all. Later that day, I'm at home on my computer, watching the remainder of the pretrial hearing on YouTube, and something strikes me. During each hearing I've attended, Durst writes notes, dons and removes his glasses, squints at the various speakers. Occasionally, he will also turn and look directly into the camera. Today, watching from home, it's me behind the camera, as it were. 
Durst looks into the camera and registers nothing. Not concern, curiosity, annoyance, vanity, nothing. When Robert Durst looks into the camera, it's with the shiny blank eyes of someone staring into the void. That was Robert Durst Stares Into the Camera by Sean Smith. For more crime and justice storytelling news and narrative analysis, head over to crimestory.com. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next Crime Story podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.